And welcome back. And our first question. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for a powerful Bible study. As usual, has Satan has Satan been able to develop his character to the point that it was perfect? If so, can I interpret that as the connection with God is non-negotiable daily? Otherwise, uh, regardless of your character maturity, once one one's eyes are taken away from Jesus, regardless of how developed one's character is, what happened to Satan can repeat again. Is that correct interpretation I can make? Uh, I would not actually come to that same conclusion, no, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, God creates sinless beings when he creates. He created Adam and Eve sinless. He created the angels, including Lucifer, sinless. Character is not created. Character is developed by the choices. Once character is developed and solidified, that's uh, what we are working towards in our grace with God to be sealed or settled into the truth and election and spiritually we cannot be moved, then we can't be shaken from that. Lucifer in heaven was sinless, but he began a trail of thinking internal to himself that for a period of time he had the option when questions and desires he could choose which way do I want to go? Do I want to go more towards self-aggrandizement and pride? Do I want to say, no, that is a destructive path. I want to stay with, with, uh, with my loyalty to Christ. He could have made that choice up until a point. And once he continued down the point of deceit and, and, uh, and, and lying to himself and to others, eventually he changed himself such that he developed a rebellious character and seared his faculties that were came to a point they were no longer responsive to love and truth, and he was beyond redemption. But there was a point where he first was entertaining the ideas that he still had the ability to choose to say no to those ideas. Adam and Eve in Eden, they faced the same type of thing, except it wasn't coming from an internal feeling and fantasies they were making. It was coming from outside themselves. They were faced with temptation and ideas, and they had to choose, which one am I going to go with? Am I going to go with this one, or am I going to go with that one? Now, because, because Adam and Eve were in a different position, and, and if you value the writings of Ellen White, she describes that, that, that Adam and Eve were a different position than that of Lucifer in heavens, that, that uh, Satan sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as to no other created being, was given a, a, re- a revelation of God's character of love. But Adam and Eve were deceived. They did not know the heights and the depths of the character of God. There were hope for them in a revelation of God's character. They could be won back to truth, Okay. Uh, but, one, but Satan's choice was final. Once he made the decision to reject God's character, having known it in the heights that he'd known it, being the covering cherub, uh, and saying, no, I don't like love. I don't like truth. This is the way I'm going. This is what I prefer. There was no more love and truth that left to reveal to him that he didn't already know and wasn't familiar with that could win him back. Okay? Adam and Eve, on the other hand, were deceived by the sophistry of Satan and the full height and depth of uh, love of God they could be won back to trust with, but they still needed a savior to fix the actual functional problem. So Christ became the second Adam to fix that problem. So no, I, I think that in, this can never happen again because for all the saved, we will have seen both sides of the equation. We have seen the long evidence of what Christ has done. We have made the choice and through God's grace been recreated and settled into that truth. And no further deceptions can ever shake us out of that again. So no, I, I think we will have eternal security. I lead a unique Bible uh, study group every week. We have a couple of Catholics, uh, Adventists, a couple of Evangelicals, Baptists, uh, a new Christian, and a Jewish lady. In our study, we read the Bible and discuss. Uh, we live in different locations, and we are going to do a weekend retreat. Question, I would love to take some of your uh, literature and uh, give them, since uh, they do not understand design law. Do you think it would be helpful to them? 
So you, you were the one that, uh, oh, P.S., uh, um, we Adventists thank you for opening our eyes. Um, so you are the one who has to decide that. Uh, somebody else asked me this question this morning, given a Bible study, what would be the best thing to share with them? It, it really depends on where the person is you're dealing with, what, what, what their mindset is, what they're interested in. For instance, if somebody was really right now interested in the three angels' messages, then our three angel message magazine would be a great thing to share. If somebody is struggling with chronic feelings of worthlessness or guilt, then could it be this simple would be a good thing to share. And so it really does depend on, on, on the mindset. Uh, others, if you read my blog for this week, um, might find that they want to do some more um, daily devotional meditation. And so uh, giving, sharing with them the free app uh, or getting a copy of the remedy, uh, either New Testament or Psalms, uh, and sharing with them. The, these are different types of things that can be shared. But it really depends where the, mo- the person is. You want to share with something with them that they're currently interested in. And uh, if you send us an email this week, and, and uh, we can have a little dialogue about the various free resources that we have that might be helpful. Objective reality and truth. How do you converse with those people that believe that truth and reality is subjective, that nothing can be proven? And also, how can we know anything or determine if anything is real? Uh, How do you deal with these people that think belief in an objective reality is the mark of an immature or unintellectual thinking person? Uh, I feel compelled to speak up lest in the presence of my silence they believe their erred thinking holds any validity. What should I do? Uh, first thing, you, you do want to know the truth for yourself. So you want to be able to understand uh, to wherever, and, and our understanding, because God's infinite, so our understanding is always growing, but wherever you are, you want to really have some solidity in your understanding of God's design laws. Law of love, how it functions. Law of truth. Law of liberty. Uh, so, uh, law of exertion. Uh, so many laws, okay, design laws. How do they function? You want to have that, that reality. This is, this is rea- there is a measurable reality, okay? You want to know that for yourself. Second question here is, what should I do? It really depends on the circumstances and the places. Jesus, it, it, there is no one answer that you apply everywhere. Jesus sometimes said, um, if they don't want to shake the dust off your feet, move on. Some of these people, if you discern that they are hostile to truth and they're not interested in it, trying to share truth with them may only cause you to be persecuted. And the best solution for some people, from some circumstances, might just be to smile, keep your quiet, and just move on to a more fertile field. Uh, it might be, though, that there are other circumstances. Maybe you're in a classroom and, and some student voices some idea and it's, a, and it's a healthy discussion environment with a non-hostile faculty member uh, that you might be able to voice a different perspective respectively that silent students in the room might need to hear to be, to be benefited by. So I, I can't tell you what to do in each circumstance. That is a decision of your personal wisdom based on your understanding of the circumstances and make it a matter of prayer and ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom in those circumstances. But there is absolute objective reality. And, uh, and, you know, you can have, if these people are people you have a relationship with, like maybe it's a, you know, a family member that you see over and over again that's going down this, uh, you know, you can, you can have real fun with them. Uh, if there's no objective reality, then it really won't matter if I put, you know, mustard on your dessert. <laughs> that mustard's not real. Or is it? Is there really mustard there on your dessert or not? Is that real? How do you know? Or are you just maybe imagining it's there? You see, you can have so much fun because there is actual reality that we interact with. 
I would very much like to share the truth about design law and God's character with pastors and church leaders, but I am very nervous. What is the first step that I should take? Again, it depends on who you're dealing with. If it is your local pastor, then the first step would be get to know your pastor. Don't try to educate him because he'll, he will get defensive. Uh, first, get to know him, invite him to your house, uh, 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 sit down, talk to him, get to know his family, uh, get to know what he's interested in. In other words, get to know him the person first. And then in that knowledge, you will find their different personalities. I have met pastors that are very personable, very um, humble, very um, loving, very open to have discussions, uh, willing to be uh, um, uh, recognized that they're finite, and if better truth and better explanations from Scripture and, and inspired sources are available, they will, will be eager to, to study that out. I've had others that already come with the knowledge of infinite truth. They, 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 they have been blessed with infinite knowledge from on high, and any other ideas or questions is, is, uh, is heresy, and they will condemn a person that would ever question their authority and power of office. And so if that's the, the mindset of that pastor, it would not be uh, wise to approach that pastor. So you need to get to know your pastor first, if you're working on an individual level. Your question could also be interpreted, though, uh, regarding I want to you know, reach out to pastors. And if that's the case, yeah, there are ways you, that, that you can just uh, find some some good materials, and maybe uh, mail some on a mailing list. Uh, uh, again, <clears throat> they receive it in the mail. There may not be any letter, just the material. It's an opportunity for them to throw it away or to look at it. Um, the Holy Spirit Im- moves and inspires. That's another way you potentially could reach also. So, Thank you for last week's clarity about the 1888 message. I remember my mom uh, talking about Jones and Wagner, so I'm sure she had a clear picture of the truth. The message has clearly been lost along the way. Your clear explanation made so much sense now, particularly in light of the past three years. It was almost a a hitting head duh moment. Thank you. (laughs) Sex. It seems like such a huge part of our designed humanity identity. Will there be sexual relations in heaven? Uh, Could Jesus talking of no marriage and giving a marriage simply refer to procreation? And so the answer to this question is simply, whatever you would like to believe at this point, you're free to believe. <laughs> we will know when we get there. This, this, this question is not answered in any inspired sources that I know of. It's all inferred off of one passage where Jesus was describing about marriage and giving in marriage and answer to whose wife would this woman be uh, who, who was married by, who's, who married her husband, the husband died, and the husband died, and through the Levitical law, she married seven brothers. And, and this was uh, asked by the Sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection as a way to trap Jesus that this woman would be married to seven people at the same time. And he said, in heaven we will be as the angels, neither marrying or giving in marriage, and you don't even know what you're speaking about. Uh, and, and so the, the bigger lesson is there, you don't know what heaven's going to be like. <laughs> That's the bigger lesson. But I can tell you this, I has not seen, you're heard, they're entering the heart of man, what God has in store for those who love him. You're not going to be disappointed. In other words, whatever, whatever you think you might not have here, it will be better there. <laughs> okay. How can Jesus give the holy character he procured at the cross as a gift to another being? If choices over time develop character, how can Jesus gift, 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 as, a, as an action, active word, gift character to another? If it was the result of his own choice through his life, wouldn't the character he developed only work for him, only save himself? How do, do his choices in his life change my character, uh, I understand we must choose to conform to the pattern 
of Christ, choice by choice, what more other than an example did his character offer? First, Christ became the second head of humanity. First and foremost, the species human was restored to sinless perfection in the person of Jesus Christ. After Adam's sin, there wasn't one sinless, righteous, mature human being. All were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. All of our righteousness was filthy rags, all terminal in sin, uh, dead in trespasses. Christ became the second Adam, took upon himself the condition which would without remedy, and he confronted it in the, in the humanity of Jesus Christ. The two antagonistic powers battled. He was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. That's what Scripture says, yes or no? Yes. We are tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. James chapter 1. So he was tempted by his humanity to act in self-interest, yet he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. He destroyed the death-causing principle and in his humanity restored the life-causing principle in his human. And he was tempted as a human, not as a divine being. Divine beings can't be tempted. God cannot be tempted by evil, James chapter 1. So as a human being, he experienced the temptation, but he chose to overcome every temptation through self-sacrificial love, and he restored God's perfect righteousness in humanity. So first and foremost... And thus he becomes the connecting link between the species human and God's divine life-giving presence, power, however you want to call it. And thus the metaphor. The metaphor that Jesus himself uses others. I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, when a, a, when a branch is grafted into the vine, does the branch bring its own life? Does it receive life from the vine? And does the vine cause the branch to produce a certain type of fruit, or does the branch produce its own fruit? Okay? It produces it from the vine. And so the metaphors of Scripture, we are to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He is the word made flesh. So we partake of the word, which destroys the lies and wins us to trust. We open the heart, and that's conversion. We are grafted in, and we're grafted in. The life is in the blood, metaphorically, so we receive a transfusion through the Holy Spirit of new motives and new desires. We have a new motive, a new desire. We desire the good instead of the evil. We have a longing for love instead of the the fear and the selfishness. And now we are in the position Christ was in to be tempted, but now we have a better desire and we have a choice to make, just like he had to make. And we choose through receiving his life with his new desires and his better motives. We choose to say yes to him and no to the temptation. And then we receive divine power. That's not our own. To succeed, to say no to the temptation. And our characters are developed by receiving the life of Christ. Now, if you don't like my explanation, I'll read you two quotations from uh, one of the founders of the Adventist Church. You might know who she is named Ellen White, the first is Christ's Object Lessons, page 311. The robe woven in the loom of heaven has not one thread of human devising. And what's that robe a symbol of? Character. Goes on to say, Christ in his, human, in his humanity wrought out a perfect character. And this character he offers to impart to us. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. In other words, to choose to love rather than choose to exploit. 
to choose to say no to the temptation and yes to the truth. Okay, keep going. When we submit ourselves to Christ, that's surrender, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. In other words, when we one one to trust, we open the heart, the spirit comes in, and I'm sure you've all experienced this. You feel different inside. You have new desires. You have new motives. The fear is diminished. The peace comes in. There's joy. There's patience. There's love. The fruits of the spirit begin to matter. And you, but you're making a choice. You have to choose. Which one do you identify with? Do you choose with the, with the desires that come from Christ? Or do you choose with the old carnal temptations? And here's the other quote. This is Zara of Ages 762. The law requires righteousness. Why does it require that? For the same reason the law requires you breathe. The law of respiration requires you breathe. Because that's how life is built. Okay? The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as a man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. That's human. That's not divine. His divine self was already perfect. Okay? He developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of man. New head of humanity. Adam is no longer the head. Jesus is now the head of humanity. His life stands for the life of humanity. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Not through a legal payment. Through the forbearance. In the same way, your child is sick with all types of symptoms. And there's a remedy offered. And they've been vomiting and having diarrhea on your new carpet and couch. Do they have to have somebody pay a penalty for that? Or do they, are you forgiven them all that stuff as long as they get well? Through your forbearance, okay? They're forgiven through the sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues, transfuses if you rather, but imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Just, he does the right thing by setting humanity right, and he sets us right through what Christ has achieved for us. And thus, you have the scriptures. Hope they're dropping into your brain right now. It is no longer I that live, but we become partakers of the divine nature. We get new hearts and right spirits. He writes his law in our hearts and minds. Our hearts are circumcised by the way. This is all internal transformational work of receiving through faith the Holy Spirit, which brings new motives and desires that we can't create on our own, and we choose to identify and love them. Good question. What was that first quote, Christ Object Lessons 311. Christ Object Lessons 311. Is God's love unconditional? I thought the answer to this would be a resounding yes, but the pastor of my SDA church preached against this. He suggested that the the conditions are repentance, obedience to God's law, and submission to God. Words have meaning and application. The question, is God's love unconditional, will depend on where you're applying the love and what you mean by unconditional. 
If you're applying the love to God's heart attitude, does God ever function in ways that are other than love? The answer is no. There's no condition upon which God will not be, a, will not be love. God is love. Okay? If that, so if that's the, is there anything we can do that costs God to love us less? The answer is no. Is there anything we can do to cause God to love us more? The answer is no. So in that sense, if that's what you mean, then, of course, but if you understand that love is more than an emotional or attitudinal affectation from God, it's functional in how his universe operates. The law of love is a principle of giving and beneficence upon which life is built. And in order for God to heal us, let me put it this way, you cannot have health while violating the laws of health. There are conditions to experiencing health. And there are no conditions on God's loving attitude toward us. There are conditions on us experiencing and benefiting by his loving attitude. Does that make sense? And those conditions are that we actually must want to benefit by those attitudes. If a person does not want God in their life, that's a condition, isn't it? God, will God force his love into someone's life against their will? No, there's a condition on God's love right there. And one of those conditions is the law of liberty. That's a design law. Love never functions without freedom. And so our willing, trusting cooperation with God is a requirement for us to be benefited by love. But if it suggested that if we don't cooperate, God stops being love, that's not true. But we can't benefit by his love unless we meet the conditions, which are really, ultimately, a heart that trusts him. That's the ultimate condition. And then a heart who in trust says, yes, I'm, I, I choose to accept your designs for life, which would be his law. I want to obey or be obedient. And by the way, in the New Testament, the, the Greek for obedience is hypokue. Hypo-hypo is in hypoglycemic or hypotensive, means low or under or humble. Acue, acoustical, means hearing. So biblical obedience is a humble willingness to listen and follow and be corrected by the truth. So you have a heart that says, yes, Lord, if I'm wrong in some way, if this isn't what's healthy for me, yes, I eagerly want to do it better. That's an obedient person, even if they're doing something wrong. So an example would be, and Graham Maxwell used to give this example, if, if the, uh, of, the, of the obedient servant, the obedient servant is waiting to hear his master's voice to open the gate. And, okay? and so he hears the master's voice and he immediately jumps up and, and puts his shoulder to the gate, but the gate has been swollen by humidity and it's stuck and with all his might he can't get it open. So the master has to get off and put his strength to it as well and together they open it. Is this a disobedient servant because he can't do what the master's called him to do? No, okay? It's not about function or performance. It's about hard attitude. I'm willing. Is God's... So I already answered that one. Uh, when Jesus said to the thief on the cross that today you will be with me in paradise, could that be interpreted as Jesus knew that the thief would die that day and the next thing he would know was Jesus' second coming? Thus, the, the matter of where the comma goes is irrelevant. So you certainly can interpret it that way if you want. 
I think the, uh, that we always want to be accurate and truthful in all details. The Greek New Testament has no punctuation, so, uh, so it is factual and accurate to, uh, to have that discussion. Where does one put the, the, put the comma is a very re- relevant, relevant thing. Uh, but certainly there is an aspect, and it's often told, that from the experience side of the thief, it will be the very day that, that he experiences life. So there is an aspect of that that's true as well. How do I explain verses like Luke 19.27 where the, Jesus tells a parable about a king who has an enemies brought before him and slaughtered? It seems so clear to my Bible study friends that God kills those who reject him. This is a great one. I just love this. Uh, if you look it up in, in, in Luke 19.27, uh, it says, uh, and you can pick whatever version you want. My, I'm not going to read the whole parable, but it ends. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. That's the NIV 84. And they all say something like this, slaughter them in front of me or something like that. Okay? So what you do is you actually don't assume their worldview and ask, what does the actual Bible say? Ask them, uh, because their assumption is that God will kill them. Does the text actually say, the text that they're quoting right there actually say, bring them before me and I will kill them? No. Bring them before me and they will be slaughtered. Bring them before me and whoever's doing the bringing is doing the slaughtering. It doesn't tell you who that is. They assume that it's the king doing it. But it never says that. In fact, the, 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 uh, the uh, pronouns make it, uh, make it the other party doing the slaughtering. So that leads into a whole other discussion that then opens up the whole. So the text itself, in, in this particular case, if the king is God, the king is not the one who does the slaughtering. It happens before him, which takes us then to the great white throne judgment, and the final end of all sin and sinners happens in the great white before God it happens, but then you can have a whole discussion about, well, what's actually happening, who's doing it? So, yeah, it's a great one. Great one to, to not fall into the trap of, of allowing their assumed read-in truths be part of your assumed answer. You're in a trap if you let them box you in. This happens a lot when it talks about the skins in Genesis, that God gave them skins, uh, and, and, they, and they immediately assume, they're God, therefore, God killed an animal to give them skins. That's an assumption. It's never, the, nowhere in inspiration does it say that. They always assume it. And then they use that to say, so therefore, that animal was representative of Jesus, and therefore, God killed Jesus on the cross. But, it's all in a, but no, it's not true. If God can create animals by speaking, and can he create a skin? I mean, seriously. But it's all, it's, these are the types of assumptions you want to fall, um, be, be, be leery of. Look at what the text says, not what they, what they say it says. Thank you so much for opening my family's and my eyes to the truth about, uh, as Jesus teaches. Um, my question is, I work in city government and have an interactive class about diversity, equity, inclusion. I'm so sorry to hear that for you. Um, reading the critical race theory book uh, you have, and I agree with, agree with is there... A way to help the fellow classmates of this class understand diversity, equity, inclusion that is functional in this fallen world. Thank you. So I don't know whether you can help them or not. I know what the truth is, and I know what that agenda is, and you have to decide in your circumstance whether there are individuals there that have honest hearts or seeking truth, or whether they are, are, are already converted and, and solidified into the DEI agenda. There, there, are, there are rabid zealots of the DEI agenda that if you were, were to, to present the truth of what's in critical race theory to them, they would 
turn and seek to rend you asunder. Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine, lest they turn and rend you asunder. Uh, Notice Jesus didn't say, don't cast your refuse before swine. That's what swine like, refuse. That's what they like. They love it. Okay? He said, don't cast your pearls, your pearls of truth. You have to have some discernment. Is this, are these people actually open and willing to, uh, to, to receive truth? Or have they already become so debased in their, in their zealotry that, that the truth would, would, would be antagonist and they turn and attack? I've had this happen a few times. Uh, not it, more so when I'm talking to a group and there's a zealot in the room. Uh, I've seen this. So I would tell you, you have to, uh, have to use some discernment and prayer about it. And, and, uh, but I, I, wouldn't, I don't go down the trail of trying to use diversity, equity, and inclusion. It just, it, those words have meaning in our society today. And if you use those words, you'll be, uh, even in all innocence, and I use this example in our Critical Race Theory magazine, you know, the word gay used to mean happy. It does not mean that in society anymore. And if you want to be obstinate and say, in our Christian institution, we have a gayness promotion committee. And we mean by that happiness committee. You can try that if you want, but I promise your Christian institution will get misperceived. And you will not actually promote happiness. You'll promote conflict. There'll be a lot of conflict over that. And I think the same thing is true of any Christian groups that try to pretend that their diversity, equity, and inclusion program is actually Christian. Good luck with that. It's not going to work. How is it that for those who don't know God and have never been exposed to godly morals understand and accept God's character. Paul said in Romans 1.20 that God's divine nature and eternal power seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. God's laws are design laws, how reality functions. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, working on all receptive hearts. And people who have not heard the gospel, so Paul after he describes that these laws are uh, God's divine nature are revealed in what he has made so without, men are without excuse. That's Romans 1.20, no chapter division verses when Paul's writing. Just a few verses later in Romans 2.12, he said, therefore those who do not have the law, but do by nature the things contained in the law are a law unto themselves, showing the laws unwritten upon their heart. What's the new covenant experience? I will write my law on your heart. So Paul's making the case that there are individuals who see in nature the revelation of God's true character that are responsive to the Holy Spirit, and, the Holy, and, they, and they choose, yes, I like love. I like to forgive. I don't like to be resentful. I don't like to be bitter. I like freedom. I like to present truth and leave others free. I like, I have a mind that loves truth. I don't like deception. And they identify with the principles of God's kingdom and they live those principles. And Paul says the law is written into their heart or their character because they've identified with those and the Holy Spirit's working on them. Ellen White actually expands on that in Desire of Ages and said that there are uh, people, uh, in various parts of the world who have never had the gospel message brought to them by human instrumentalities, but they've responded to the Spirit of God working in nature. And they have developed a Christ-like character through this. And they are considered children. They're the ones who will go into danger and sacrifice themselves for the missionary coming to preach to them, as she describes. And uh, they are considered children of God. And that's, and that's how I would say that that's how it works. What is the best way to communicate feedback on today's presentation? 
uh, email through requests at uh, comeandreason.com. Email requests at comeandreason.com and send us your uh, uh, feedback for the program. Thank you. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your kingdom and how you run your universe, and we just pray that you will finish your work in our life. Help us have greater discernment, greater wisdom in when to speak and when not to speak, uh, who to speak to, and enable us to carry this message to the world. We know this message has to lighten the world, and we pray for your latter rain to be poured out uh, in a very powerful way on the receptive hearts around the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.